You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Uh, today we have our another guest speaker, Dr. Dan Lee. I don't think he needs any introduction as he is here probably once or twice every quarter. And today he'll be uh, guiding us through another passage in the book of Acts. So why don't we give a hand for Dan Lee. Good morning. Am I, am I mic'd up? All right. So uh, it's such a pleasure for me to come speak to you again and, and uh, extra privilege to be able to preach through this great book of Acts. And today we are reaching the culmination of Paul's uh, many trials that, that he's had in Jerusalem and Caesarea. And uh, we're going to be finishing that up. And we're going to be going through Acts 25, verse 23, all the way through Acts 26, verse 32. Now, before we get into it, um, I want to just ask you guys a question. Uh, do you guys have a bucket list destination? Who here has a bucket list, some place, a destination or a place you want to go to before you kick the bucket? Hey, throw, throw some out. Throw some out. Just shout it out. Anywhere? Spain. Spain. All right. That's a good one. Where else? Any, anybody else? Israel. Where else? Africa. Okay. Any, any, anybody else? Where? North Pole, okay, good, good. Uh, Santa Barbara? No, I'm just kidding. All right, so USA, USA Today published their top 20 bucket list destinations voted by American readers for 2017, and I'll just give you the top 10. So number one was Northern Lights. I'm not sure which one, probably the ones in, in Canada. Uh, number two, the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Uh, three, the Grand Canyon, always our favorite. Four, Bora Bora. I didn't see that one coming, but Bora Bora. Uh, five, uh, African Safari. Yes, many, um, many on the, uh, for many people, that is definitely a bucket list destination. Six, uh, the place is not called Left Blink on Purpose. Um, I did leave it blank on purpose, and I'll, you'll see why in a minute. Uh, seven, uh, Venice, Italy. Italy is always in top ten. Um, eight, Las Vegas. Oh, that's kind of a disappointment. Eight, really? Um, nine, road trip across America, and ten, the Bahamas. Now, at this point, half of you are in this room are thinking, man, I want, hope he goes through the top 20. These pictures are awesome, you know. And the other half of you are thinking, what's, what's your point? What's your point, Dr. Dan? So the point here is that I don't know if you guys realize this, but the Apostle Paul also had a bucket list destination and a place that he wanted to go before he kicked the bucket. Now, I'm going to give the youth the first, first chance, first crack at it. What, what, is, what do you think Apostle Paul's bucket list destination is? If you've been um, coming to church for the last month or so, you probably figured that out by now through as, as the, we've been going through Acts. Anyone want to take a stab? Who said Rome? Excellent. You're right. Rome is the Apostle Paul's bucket list destination. All right. Way to go, uh, Just, Justin. All right, so that, and that happens to be number six on the list. So 2,000 years ago, Rome was on a lot of people's bucket list destination. It's still on top 10 today, and it was Paul's number one uh, bucket list destination. And how do I know that is um, there's many places in the Bible um, that Paul talks about wanting to go to Rome. And specifically, when he wrote the letter, his letter to the Romans, when he was do, in his third missionary journey, when he was at Corinth, he wrote to the Romans, 
And to um, the people at Rome, he said this in his first chapter. He said, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And then later on in, in chapter 15, he writes, I've been longing many years to visit you. Now, Paul has a different purpose to go to Rome than the average person that puts you know, Rome on their bucket list. Um, he's not going there for vacation. He's not going to be going there in his Bermuda shirt, sh- shorts and his you know, Hawaiian shirt and you know, sandals, although he may be wearing sandals. But um, he wanted to fulfill the great commission of Jesus put out in, in Matthew 28, you know, go to all the nations and baptizing them. Um, and, and then also Acts 1.8. If you, if you had to pick a theme verse for Acts, I would say this easily hands down the theme verse, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is, in fact, how the gospel is spread. It's spread exactly as predicted in Acts 1.8. It started in Jerusalem and then spread out to the neighboring uh, nation of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And that's what Apostle Paul is trying to do here. He's trying to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth because Rome is on the other side of the known world at this time. And he knows that is the political capital of the world. And he wants to get there because this would be very strategic in spreading the gospel. And in today's passage, we reach the culmination of Paul's multiple trials that he's been going through that you've been learning about through this last, uh, this last month of worth of sermons. And we reach the culmination of those trials, which results in him being transported to his bucket list destination of Rome. Now, um, the passage that I received is a very long passage. I remember when I got the passage from Pastor Peter here, I'm thinking, what? This is huge. There's so much. How am I supposed to, you know, exegete this, this long passage? But then he explained, look, Pastor uh, Curtis Lowe is coming, and we're frantically trying to finish up Acts here before he comes, and so we have to take big chunks here, and I'm like, oh, now I get it. That makes sense. So Pastor Peter uh, emailed uh, the guest speakers a suggestion of what to do, and this is what he uh, suggested. No, little tip, guys. Um, this is just an aside, a little, a little quick tip. Be careful what you write in your tweets and your texts and your emails because it'll come back to haunt you. People will start to, you know, forward it to other people. Now, in this case, though, Pastor Peter um, only said great things and, and very, um, you know, erudite things because that's, who, that's the kind of person he is. So, and plus, you know, Pastor Peter's my buddy. I would never out him if he did something really bad. But just a little tip. Um, President of the United States needs to know this tip, and everybody else, you know, people have been fired from their jobs, um, people have been kicked out of school, whatever, because of what they write and, and text. But in this case, Pastor Peter gave uh, us guest speakers some great suggestions. He said this, because these are longer passages of Scripture and maybe harder to preach in detail verse by verse, a suggestion to you would be, and he wrote, uh, one, read through the entire passage. So, um, and then two, give a general overview, and three, focus on one specific part or point of the larger passage for application. And um, being the uh, rogue or maverick guest speaker that I am, I'm only going to listen to about half of what Peter suggested, you know. I mean, I'm not going to listen to everything. Uh, And these were suggestions anyway. So I will read through the entire passage, even though it's very long, and so you have to bear with me. But I timed it myself. It's only like five, six minutes worth of reading. Um, And... uh, I will also give a general overview, but in order, I, when I read through the passage that I got handed, I realized if I just tried to even exegete this passage, it would be really hard to understand unless I give a general overview of the preceding chapters, um, because you really have to understand the backstory leading up to today's passage in order to really understand why things are happening in today's passage. So I'm actually going to 
take it one step further and give a general overview of this whole section that, uh, of, the, of the trials. And if you can see in your bulletin, for those who like to take notes, um, you'll see the, there's blanks um, where, uh, of each of the preceding chapters leading up to all the way through chapter 26 in case you want to take notes. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a general overview. And you guys who, who have heard me speak before, you know I love background information, love to bring, bear, bring to bear historical and cultural information so that really helps us understand what's going on in the passage. And then the, the last thing, this focus on one thing, there's no way, there's so many different uh, application points from even today's passage that I came up with. I can come up with 20. So I'm going to compromise. I'm going to go over like three um, actually, I'm going to sneak in 20. You'll see. I'm going to sneak in 20 different application points throughout the, today's sermon, but I will officially go over three different application points, not just one because I just can't help myself, so, and still try to finish on time. So that's my goal. Um, so let's zoom out a little bit before we zoom in. Let's just take even a, a higher bird's-eye view of this whole book of Acts. Um, it's entitled, uh, we shorten it, we call it Acts, but it's really the whole title of the book is called Acts of the Apostles. And many of you guys know this, but this is Luke's sequel to the gospel, his gospel book. I don't know if you realize that Luke wrote Acts, and Acts is basically the sequel to, to his gospel of Luke. And, and the gospel of Luke um, is basically detailing Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then Acts takes off of, from Jesus' ascension to heaven, and then we see the growth of the early church through the Acts of the Apostles, over the next 30 years, and we see how the church is growing and how Jesus handed the reins off to his apostles to spread the gospel um, to the ends of the earth. And the first maybe third to 40% of Acts, um, it, we see it's really the Peter and Paul show. Um, uh, really, it, it's, it is kind of a misnomer because it's really not Acts of all apostles. It's really the two main, two, two main characters, Peter and Paul. And the first 30, 40% of it is mostly dealing with Peter, and in the last 60-65% is dealing with Apostle Paul. And as you know, we're nearing the end of the book of Acts now, and so we are dealing with Apostle Paul now, and he's still in prison and still going through his trials. Now, if you just showed up today for the first time um, in catching up to today's sermon, or if you missed a lot of the previous sermons, you're going to wonder, why is Paul still in prison, and why is he going through these trials? And so what I want to do, again, is summarize this whole section to help us make sense of it all. All right. So let's, we're going to, today's passage is Acts 25 and 26. We're going to start back in Acts 20, 21. We're going to catch up here. So um, what happened back in Acts 20 is Paul is in Ephesus, and he's with the Ephesian church, and he's saying, you know what, I need to make my way back to Jerusalem. Despite warnings, there is a, prophet named Agabus who warned him, hey, you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen to you. And Paul's like, I don't care because, you know, I'm ready to die for my Savior. I need to go back to Jerusalem. So he winds his way through several other cities, makes his way back to Jerusalem in Acts 20 and 21. And in Jerusalem, Paul meets up with James. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He's the guy who wrote James, and he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And James says to Paul, hey, welcome back, brother. A lot of things have been happening since you've been gone. Thousands of Jew, Jews have become Christians or Jewish Christians now. But there's a lot of schism in the church because um, a lot of the Jews are saying, man, you're, a, you're becoming a Gentile, Paul. You're going to preaching to all these Gentile uh, cities and stuff. And you're, you've been chucking your Gentile, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, your Jewish roots. And uh, you, um, 
um, are just, you know, saying things like, you know, forget about Moses, he's not important anymore, and so on. So what I want you to do to make things right is to go into the temple and go through this Jewish purification ritual that a lot of the Jews do so you can show good face to the Jews who, um, and um, so you can be a good witness to them too. So Paul says, hey, I'm going to try to be all things to all people. He goes into the temple and goes through this seven-day Jewish purification rite. At the end of his seven days, and apparently maybe when he's coming out of the temple, there's a mob of Jews who see Jesus, I mean, not Jesus, uh, Paul, and they don't like Paul, okay, because again, he's been preaching uh, to all these uh, Gentiles and, 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 and converting all these Jewish people to Christianity. So he, they don't like him. And they mob him, and they cause a riot, and they start beating Paul up. And they cause such a stir that the riot breaks out around the temple and throughout the whole city of Jerusalem. And where it gets out to the Roman soldiers, who their job is to keep the peace in town, they're like the police force, and gets all the way up to the commander named Claudius Lysias, and he comes in and intervenes and breaks up the riot. And then they, they arrest Paul because he, apparently he must be the instigator of this riot. Okay, that's what happens in Acts 20 and 21. Now we catch up to Acts 22. Acts 22, even though Paul is arrested here and being dragged away, he says, hey, man, can I give my testimony? I mean, man, if I'm being dragged away to prison, I'm going to do everything I can to, you know, figure a way out. Paul decides, I want to give this, my testimony to this big crowd. While he's giving his testimony, he mentions that part of this testimony, he says that the Lord sent him to the Gentiles to be preaching. And this infuriates the Jews even more, and they come after Paul again. And uh, fortunately, the Roman commander had taken him away and actually, in a sense, putting him in the barracks kind of saved his life because he got him out of harm's way. So now once uh, Paul is in the barracks, the Roman commander, he's going to flog Paul. That's what they do to uh, prisoners, to, to their new arrestees to ex- extract information from him. And Paul says, hey, by the way, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a Roman citizen. You know, I've been a Roman citizen since birth. And this really scared the Roman commander because you can't be flogging Roman citizens um, nilly-willy without a proper trial. So now um, we get to Acts 23. So the next day, they want to give him a proper trial. And since this was a Jewish situation, Jewish manner, Paul stands trial before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin are kind of like the local Jewish Supreme Court, if you will. They're made up of the high priest, who uh, is Ananias in this case, the high priest Ananias. Not to be confused, so there's two other Ananiases in the Bible. There's the Ananias and Sophira, or Sophira, or Sophira that the, the couple that lied and died by the hands of the Holy Spirit. And then the other Ananias is the guy who um, baptized uh, Paul when he was blinded on the road to Damascus. So this Ananias, apparently it's a popular name, is the high priest. And then there are 70 people, other high-ranking officials, mostly made up of Sadducees and Pharisees that make up the Sanhedrin. Okay, so Paul stands trial before them. By the way, the Sanhedrin are these same type of people that held the trial for Jesus, too, and accused him of a lot of wrongdoings. So these guys are, uh, during this trial, these guys are split. Some people think, oh, Paul's a good guy. He's not that bad. He shouldn't be in, in prison. And the other half, the people who hate Paul, they really hate Paul. And during this trial, they're just like, forget the trial. They just start attacking Paul again. So the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, has to take Paul back, Paul back into prison, keep him out of harm's way. And that evening, the Lord comes to him and stands near Paul and says, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
So he's saying, Paul, you're going to get your bucket wish list. You're going to be sent to Rome. So don't worry. You're not going to die in this uh, uh, right now during this uh, terrible time that you're going through. So now in the second half of this chapter in Acts 23, there are f- at least 40, more than 40 men form a plot that they want to kill Paul. They're so seething mad that they want to kill Paul because they realize, I don't really care about the outcome of this trial. They want to get after Paul. In fact, they're so mad, they make a vow not, that they're not going to eat or uh, drink until they kill Paul. That's how mad they are. Now, Paul's nephew overhears the plot. This is so funny. I, I was like, this is like a thriller of a movie or something here. Paul's nephew, uh, this is Paul's sister's son, so I didn't know Paul had a sister, but uh, her son overhears this plot somehow, sneaks, makes his way into, sneaks his way into Paul's uh, prison cell, tells Paul what's going on. And so Paul says, hey, you know, tells the, one of the guards, escort my nephew to the commander Lysias, Claudius Lysias, and tell him, let the nephew tell him what's going on. So the nephew goes up to Claudius and tells him the plot, and Claudius believes the nephew. Of course he's going to believe him because all these people wanting to kill Paul are ready, so it's natural that there's going to be other men that's going to form this murderous plot. So Claudius takes this, uh, this, this plot very seriously, and he detaches 470 of his Roman soldiers. Like, that's a lot of people under the cover of night to escort Paul to Caesarea to be, go under Governor Felix's jurisdiction. So he's going to take him out of Jerusalem and under the cover uh, with escort of uh, Roman soldiers. Now, there's a map here of uh, Jerusalem here, and it's 60 miles away to Caesarea. So it's not like a, you know, a short distance. Now, 60 miles for us, you know, with paved roads and cars, no big deal. But 60 miles back then, on foot, on horse, it'd take multiple days. So that's why you needed 470 soldiers to protect Paul, because he, he would have been killed trying to get there himself. And Caesarea is basically kind of like the capital of this area in terms of where, you know, they do, you know, higher level trials. So Claudius Lysias says, hey, man, I'm going to get Paul out of my jurisdiction. I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. I'm going to give him to Governor Felix's. He's going to become Governor Felix's problem now up in Caesarea. So this is how Paul's transported to Caesarea. Now we get to Acts 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias, some of the elders, and this high-powered lawyer named Tertullus comes and bring charges against Paul. So they're not wasting any time. Five days later, they get up all the way up to Caesarea, and they're going to bring charges, okay? Um, so now, governor, now it's Governor Felix's job to figure out what's going on and figure out what to do with, with the, Paul. And here are the three of the false charges, I mean, three of the charges that they, they, uh, they say that Paul had committed, uh, that uh, some of the uh, bad things that Paul did. And you can remember that because I'll start with S. One is sedition, and sedition is basically treason or insurrection. Basically, they accuse Paul of causing riots in the, in the area. And, and in a sense, Paul indirectly did. He was just being Paul, but he's not really the instigator of the riots. But the Romans, they don't like riots. That's why you might have heard of the term Pax Romana, peace of Rome. They don't like it. And when there's uprising and riots, that's a bad thing, and they want to squelch it. And so if you're causing riots, that's a bad thing. That could be, uh, you could get executed for that. So this lawyer, Tortula, starts you know, talking about all these things that Paul's doing wrong. He also uh, claims that Paul uh, commits sectarianism. And sectarianism is basically um, 
sects of various religious factions, in this case a Jewish faction, these rogue Jewish factions that caused trouble in Rome. Um, and there was a lot of these other messianic groups, not necessarily Jesus as a messiah, but messianic Jewish groups that hate the Roman government, and they are very um, hostile and very, uh, what's the word, um, vicious and so on. And they attack Rome. And so they want to uh, associate Paul with this, uh, being a ringleader of this Nazarene sect, because the Nazarenes was a pejorative term because Jesus from Nazareth, and hoping that maybe, you know, lump Paul into these other um, very violent groups. But Paul's not part of a violent group. Uh, Christians, this sect of, 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 Jew, of Judaism, are very pacifistic, right? And in fact, they, they want to obey the government. What did Jesus say? You know, give the Caesar what is Caesar, and he commands us to obey the government. Um, the, the, this Nazarene sect are very pacifistic. They're not violent, but, but the lawyer is trying, doing his best to try to get the governor, Felix, to, to believe that Paul is this violent person. So that maybe he can execute him for that. And then finally, sacrilege. So uh, the, back then in the temple, the, the Gentiles could go around in the outer court of the temple, but they can't go into the inner court. If you go into the inner court, it's automatic death. Even, even the Jews back then didn't even have to bring it up to the Romans for execution. This is like one thing they could do, and they could execute a, a Gentile themselves. And they, and they are alluding that Paul brought this uh, Ephesian, this Gentile named Trophimus, into the inner court of the temple, even though that never happened. Earlier, they saw Paul hanging out with them, but now they want to associate with that. So they're bringing up all these false charges, hoping that Felix, the governor Felix, will bite on some of them. So the last half of Acts 24, governor Felix, uh, Paul gets to defend himself, and Felix realizes, man, what Paul is telling is the truth. This this high-powered lawyer and the high priest, man, they're just making up stuff, right? So he adjourns the court, and he says, and he wants to buy some time. He says, I'm going to wait till the Claudius Lysias comes up, and then we'll, we'll hear a little bit more. But he, it, was, it was really just a compromise on Felix's part. He was just wanting to buy time. See, there's a lot of similarities between Paul and Jesus' trials. Um, in Jesus' trials, we have a lot of false accusations against him, right? That he was blaspheming, he was causing riots, and so on. And the Sanhedrin then took it to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And at that time, Pontius Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with Jesus, right? So he said, man, there's nothing wrong with Jesus. He's innocent. Let him go. But the Jewish mob, the Jewish crowd wouldn't let him go. So he traded um, Jesus for, and gave up Jesus, eventually gave up Jesus to the Jews. And the Jews then, um, um, that led to Jesus' crucifixion. See, the thing is that the Roman governors, they have a, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And one, on one side, they want to keep peace. And if they don't make peace with his Jewish leaders and so on and allow more riots to happen, they themselves will lose their job because the emperors, they don't like you know, bad uprisings and riots in the area. So they will lose their job and even get executed if they don't keep the peace. So Felix here has a problem, just like Pontius Pilate did. He, he can't allow all these rabid Jews to go crazy causing riots in the area. Um, on the other hand, he also has a sense of justice, and he knows that Paul is innocent, and he wants to let him go, but if he lets him go, the Jews will get upset. Does that make sense? So there's a lot of similarities between Paul's trials and Jesus' trials, and now you kind of have an understanding why Paul is still in prison, because Felix can't really let him go, or else bad things will happen um, to him, 
but he can't really, he doesn't really want to execute Paul because he knows he's innocent. So um, he, he does the a good, as any good politician does, he compromises. He keeps Paul in prison. And all, the other reason why he keeps Paul in prison is because he wants a bribe from Paul. He thinks Paul is really rich, and, he, and uh, he's hoping that Paul will give him bribes. And he keeps him there for two years in prison. And the reason why he keeps him there two years is because after two years is up, Felix himself is ousted because there were some other Jewish uprisings that he couldn't squelch. It had nothing to do with Paul. And then they basically got rid of him, fired him, and they, they brought in this guy named Portius Festus um, to be the new governor. So now we catch up to Acts 25. We're almost here at our, our chapter today. I mean, we are at our chapter, but the first half of Acts 25, which was, we covered last week, um, Portius Festus is now the new governor, and he doesn't waste any time. And he goes up to Jerusalem to meet with the chief priests and Jewish leaders. Now you have a kind of understanding why Festus wants to make peace, because there's been a lot of Jewish uprisings, right, and a lot of riots in the land. And Festus wants to make peace with the Jewish leaders because he himself doesn't want to get ousted as the, as the governor. So he goes up there, and he's trying to make peace. And sure enough, the leaders in Jerusalem, all they care about is the Apostle Paul still. They still care about the Apostle Paul. You know, two years later, they still want Paul dead. And so they say, hey, man, what, one, thing we can, one thing we want you to do as your first task as governor is to transfer Paul back, back up to Jerusalem so we can have another trial back up here. But they did this only because they have another plot to ambush Paul. But it can't be the same 40 men that have a plot before, because remember, they vowed not to eat or drink until Paul died, and obviously they must have been dead, or they lied, they did eat or drink. But anyway, so it's, it's a different group that want to ambush Paul. And so Portius Festus goes back to Caesarea, and he talks to Paul, and he says, hey, Paul, you know, you've been in prison for two years. I'm reopening your trial, buddy. Uh, you want to go back up to Jerusalem to stand trial. And Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. As he has a right as a Roman citizen to appeal to even the higher court, the highest court in the land, to Rome. And then that's why he's now going to go to Rome. So he's saying, I know, Paul in his mind is thinking, There's, this is crazy, going back and forth, all these trials. I'm not going to get a fair hearing, especially in Jerusalem. Paul's no dummy. He knows that if he gets transferred back to Jerusalem, he's going to likely die. So he's saying, I'm going to appeal to Caesar. I'm going to, take, I'm going to make my way to Rome now and get a trial there. So now we're about to catch up to our chapter today. Um, and again, I know this kind of took some time, but I'm hoping that with this background, you will greatly understand today's passage. At the same time, there's this Jewish king that comes into town, into Caesarea. His name is King Agrippa. He's in town. Remember, everybody's playing politics now. And the Jewish king, he, he, he wants to make, uh, you know, play politics with the new governor and get in cahoots with him, right? So he plays a, a visit to Festus. And when Festus um, sees uh, King Agrippa, he realizes, hey, I'm going to take this opportunity to have the Jewish king meet up with Paul too. Because, you know, Festus being this Gentile governor, he, he doesn't understand a lot of the Jewish matters. But this Jewish king does. So he takes advantage of it. And now we catch up to Acts 25, verses 23, through uh, chapter 26, verse 32. And now we're going to go through, I'm going to read through this uh, passage here and sort of talk about some of the salient points as we go along. All right, so now we're on verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. 
Agrippa is the Jewish king, and Bernice is his sister, actually. But a lot of people think that both of them were in an incestuous relationship. And they came with great pomp. And I love how the, uh, the Luke uh, talks, describes this, you know, great pomp and circumstance. You know, they, they're dressed in their royal robes and jewelry. They probably bring a band and enter this audience room with the high-ranking military officials and prominent men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul is brought in. And so you see all these people, these dignitaries, dressed up. Um, and then you have Paul in his uh, prison garb and in shackles. Uh, what a, what a uh, con- contrast and irony here. So, verse 24, Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made this appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write about his majesty, to his majesty about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, especially you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. So what Festus is saying is this. Paul appealed to Rome, but I got to send him to Rome now for trials. But when I send him to Rome, the emperor is going to say, why are you sending me this guy to Rome for trials? Why couldn't you have handled it yourself? I got to specify some charges against Paul, but have nothing against him. I can't find anything wrong with him. So that's why I brought you, King Agrippa, in here to listen to Paul. Maybe you can figure out so you can give me information so I won't embarrass myself when I send a letter with Paul to, to, to the emperor, to Emperor Nero, so he can, Paul can stand trial there. So you guys get that? So this is what's going on here. Now let's go on further. We get to chapter 26 now. And in chapter 26, we start with Agrippa saying to Paul, you have permission now to speak for yourself. So King Agrippa is going to hear Paul's trial. And uh, Paul, instead of defending himself more or less, he's going to actually decide to give his testimony again. And we hear Paul's uh, incredible testimony again through the rest of this chapter. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Do Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem? They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee, and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night, King Agrippa. Um, I'm sorry, King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. And this wasn't the solar eclipse that Paul saw. It was something else. All right. We all fell to the ground, and I heard the voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Now, this statement, kick against the goads, is not in our common vernacular today. And goads is basically a stick back then that has a sharp um, metal or iron end to it. And uh, the people would prod the oxen with the stick, with this goad. Um, and uh, the, the oxen, you know, to, 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 to help steer the oxen where they want to go. And the oxen would kick against the stick. But when they kicked against the stick, it actually did them harm because they're kicking against a sharp pointed end. So it's counterproductive for the oxen to do that. And so what G Jesus is saying to Apostle Saul, uh, to Saul here is that it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What you're doing is wrong and it's counterproductive. And you, even though you think it's a good thing, it's actually harmful to you. Now that's what kick against the goads means. So then in verse 15, then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appealed to you to, I, I have appeared to you to point you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn from them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among the, uh, those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and, and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. So now Paul is reiterating what happened you know, two years ago when the Jews seized him in the temple. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Now at this point, Festus interrupts Paul and he says, you are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. This is a famous quote from this passage. And basically, what he's saying is, you believe that a dead man rose from the dead? That, that's what he's saying, that Paul's insane. And then you're going to follow this um, out? You're going to change your whole, whole course of action, your whole previous Pharisee Jewishness, your whole upstanding um, place in society? And what Paul's saying now, he replies, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. Hephaestus. And then Paul turns to King Agrippa and he says, the king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Basically he's saying that Christianity is not done in a corner. It's not like, you know, the 12 disciples, you know, huddled in a corner and said, hey, we're going to start this religion and, you know, something that nobody can falsify. He's saying, no, Jesus was out close, up close and personal to everybody. You saw him alive. You saw him uh, preaching, you saw him speaking, you saw him healing, you saw him die uh, in public, and you saw him alive three days later. 500 people and more saw him walking around. Um, this is the faith that we have in this, uh, our Savior, who we think is alive and well today. And so Paul then says um, to King Agrippa, do you believe these prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? He's like, you trying to convert me? And so, you know, Agrippa's kind of in a rock and a hard place too because maybe he does believe Paul, but if he becomes, you know, a Christian now, it's going to look bad because he's going to look foolish in front of Festus who thinks that you're insane if you want to believe a dead guy rose from the dead. 
So Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. So Paul's saying, basically, Paul probably realized in his heart of hearts, King Agrippa and Festus, they may not believe anything he says, because they have a lot to lose. They're, up, you know, they're standing in society, being a king and a governor. But there's a lot of other people in the room that Paul is witnessing to. His testimony may reach them. And he's saying, I hope that you may become what I am, except for these chains, which is, again, the irony here. He, Paul is basically saying that I am spiritually free, although I'm physically chained up. But the irony here is all these people, these dignitaries there, they are physically free. They got, they're, you know, they're great. They're all in their pomp and circumstance. They're all in their royal robes. They're all rich and have high standing society. But they are spiritually shackled up. They are spiritually prisoned. Um, and so that's what Paul is basically alluding to here. So the king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice who are sitting with them. And after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. They realized that, you know, saying a dead man rose from the dead, yeah, maybe you're a little insane, maybe a little crazy, but uh, it doesn't deserve death or imprisonment. And the final verse of this chapter Agrippa says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But now we know why Paul appealed to Caesar earlier, even though maybe he could have been set free, because being set free, he would still be in danger in this area. Paul wants to be transported to Rome, and because, again, some of the verses that we discussed earlier, but it was not the exact way to get to Rome that he thought, but it is, a, it is God's way. Now, in the next uh, couple of weeks, I just want to give you a little teaser we're going to see some other crazy stuff. Paul's going to take a circuitous route to Rome, and I won't, you know, um, divulge too much, but there's some other crazy stuff that will happen to Paul at the end of Acts here that I hope you will come back to um, listen to. So let's get to the application. As I said, there's easily, I could come up with 20 different application points, and I'm going to sneak them all in, but I will give you only three, um, three official ones. But we could talk about, from the passages today, we could talk about, you know, having courage or being steadfast in distress, uh, duress or living a totally committed life or talk about having endurance or talk about evangelism or talk about how to remain holy even though you have opportunities not to or not to lose heart or to talk about kicking against the goads like um, how about us? We do things that are counterproductive uh, with God, right? And um, we are kicking against the goads and it's only when we are in line with God's prodding that we, everything is right. Or how about another application, like realigning our bucket list? Now, it's not wrong to have a bucket list of going to Spain or African safari or so on, but how about some other bucket lists um, that you have in your life? Maybe it's seeing one of your relatives or close friends or companions or coworkers, to, uh, the Christ, or some other things. So realigning our bucket list. So um, I chose three. Um, these are the three I chose. Now, I don't have any particular reason why I chose these three. Maybe they kind of encompass all the others. Um, but let's, let's just go over these real quickly. So the first one is de- how to deal with trials and sufferings. I think we can learn a lot about Paul. Now, you guys uh, know this guy, Joel Olstein. Um, he's a famous uh, pastor, and I say that loosely. Um, I'm not going to call him out today, even though I could and should, because we are supposed to expose false teachers and, and to call them out publicly. Um, but we don't have time for that. But he wrote this uh, bestseller called Your Best Life Now. And the title itself is already uh, false. Um, actually, John MacArthur said, said this very uh, interesting comment. He said, Joel Olstein's book, Your Best Life Now, is actually true. 
it's old, but it's only true for those who are going to hell. Because this is your best life now for those going to hell. But for those of us who are Christians, for the Christian, realize that your best life is never now nor in this lifetime. Joel Olstein claims that, you know, you can have your best life. And, he's, and part of his book is saying how that God wants you to be wealthy and how to attain uh, wealth and so on in this, in this life now. But you've got to realize that your best life, best life is never now. And in fact, you should not try to have your best life now in terms of materialism and so on, um, those things. Um, but this profound statement should hopefully grab you. Your best life is always ahead of you as a Christian. And if you understand that, it should change the way you live your life. Because if you are dealing with suffering and trials, in this case, Paul had literal trials and then you know, metaphorical trials in his life, and all of us deal with suffering and trials, realize that, that as bad as it is for you now or even in, the, in your lifetime here on earth, your best life is always in the future. And when you have that in mind, you will realize that you don't want to store for yourselves treasures on earth. You want to store for yourselves treasures in heaven where your best life, where 99.99999% of your, of your life is where you will be spending. Um, so when Paul was writing 2 Corinthians, he recounted his, his life, and he says this, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, and from fellow Jews and from Gentiles, in the city, danger in the country, at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep, known hunger and thirst, gone without food, been cold and naked. And I constantly face the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. Think about one pastor for one church, how much pressure he has, all the churches. So he has all these physical uh, suffering, all these mental suffering, yet he, he is able to say that God's grace is sufficient for him, for his power, God's power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. And that's why Paul is able to say also, we should not lose heart, though inwardly we are wasting away, um, I'm sorry, though outwardly we are wasting away, Inwardly, we are new day by day for our light and momentary troubles. And boy, Paul's troubles, they weren't very light or momentary as far as I'm concerned. But compared to eternal glory in heaven, they are light and momentary. So he's saying that our best days are ahead of us for all of us as Christians. And this is one way you can deal with trials and suffering in your life. All right, the second uh, application point is evangelism. All of us, we have so many excuses not to witness. Oh, it's not the proper time. You know, it's not the time or place. Oh, that person doesn't want to hear it anyway. Um, so I'm not very, you know, I'm not, I'm not very eloquent in speech, whatever. The Apostle Paul had many excuses if he wanted to. He could say, man, I'm in prison right now. You know, I got to figure out my way to get out of prison. I don't have time to witness to people. Um, but Paul was faithful to the end in preaching the gospel at all times, all circumstances, to all people. Um, I just want to make the point, you don't have to be a super apologist to be a good evangelist, all right? Um, you know I love apologetics, but apologetics doesn't win people over, all right? Um, um, apologetics does great for pre-evangelism. It's, it's great to strengthen our faith. But the best way to evangelize, the most successful way, is just build relationships with people. And if you don't have a lot of non-Christian friends, I'd say make some, you know? 
And then after you get to know him, give him your testimony. That's what Apostle Paul did. That's what we learned today. He talked about what his life was before he became a Christian. He talked about his conversion experience. And he talked about what his life is like after. Your testimony is yours. It's personal. You understand it. You know it. You don't have to learn it. Um, give him your testimony uh, to people about how your life has changed because of Christ. Uh, and give these to people you built relationships with people. And that's the best way to evangelize. All right. And then finally, God's sovereignty. Um, let me end with this. Um, through the book of Acts, we see God's sovereignty displayed throughout this book, throughout this section. Um, I always found it so interesting um, that I think God has a great sense of humor. He took the most anti-Christian, the worst person on the face of this earth, if you will, somebody who hated Christians, killing them, you know, stoning them, putting them in prison, and he took, them, he took that man and converted him and then made him the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen. He made him the one who uh, ironically is the one who's now trying to convert people uh, to the very people he was trying to kill earlier. That's the Apostle Paul. That is God's sovereignty. And we see God's sovereignty throughout this section. We don't have time to go into every bit and detail, but one of them was just so interesting how the nephew overheard this plot and was able to save Paul's life and so on. That's God's sovereignty. We see it throughout all these circumstances and situations. And we see God's sovereignty of him sending uh, Paul to Rome, not necessarily the way Paul wanted to. He wanted to go as a free man, but it's probably the best way because when Paul goes to Rome, he gets a chance to talk to the Emperor Nero himself, to all these other dignitaries, to all these high-ranking officials, and he writes four of his, some of his greatest uh, letters while in prison in Rome. He writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Philemon's not so great, but that's all right. Three out of four are pretty great. Um, well, Philemon's great, too. I can't say that. Please, God, don't, don't uh, send bolts raining down on me right now. But, I mean, it's not as important as the other three. But anyway, so our job is not to figure out God's sovereign plan for our lives. We'll never figure it out. We don't know why we're placed in certain circumstances, why certain outcomes happen. But our job is just to live out our lives and glorify him no matter what situation we find him in. Our job is to do all these things. Some of these things that hopefully struck you, it doesn't have to be these three things in bold, but some of these things to live out your life with courage or endurance or not to lose heart, to remain holy under um, uh, your trials and suffering that you experience. Uh, any, do you guys have any, uh, any questions? Anybody with any questions on anything? No? All right, with that, um, we have a song of response, I think. And uh, thank you very much for your attention today.